Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. Hello, all my Colorado natives. Woo! This is what we call the righteous remnant. All those Californians and Texans, they would see this snow as a rip in the chat. But you guys, woo, making it through the snow. How many of you just love this weather? How many, this, this, is, this is just absolute heaven to me, heaven to me. I, there's nothing like a Colorado day where you wake up, it's sun shining, and as you're getting to 10, 11, 12, you look towards the mountains and you just see like Armageddon coming down over the peaks. And it's just, you just know, like it's going to be an awesome night. This is the first time as youth pastor at New Life Church, the first time that the senior and executive team let me choose whether I could have a service tonight or not. <laughs> So 2 o'clock rolls around, and I, I'm shooting a text to my bosses, and some of their kids are in here this evening. And I was like, hey, uh, are we having to cancel service tonight? What's the deal? And they're like, well, you know, the snow doesn't look too bad. Um, let's, let's reevaluate again at 3, 4 o'clock. I was like, okay, great. 4.30 rolled around, and it was like, who's coming down? You couldn't, see the, you couldn't see the mountains anymore. I-25 was backed up. If you're up on 83 or County Line Road, you're in a ditch. And I was like, well... Do you guys want me to cancel service? And I get a response and they go, you know, it's a toss up. Other ministries around the church are canceling. Why don't you decide? I said, okay, we're gonna still meet. I was talking, and here's my thing. I have wanted for so long a student ministry service where like 90 kids show up on a Wednesday night. Here's my thing. So back when I was in high school, which was like 12 years ago, okay, it used to snow like two feet, and you wouldn't shut church down for anything, like for anything. Like we'd show up, there'd be like 30 people who showed up. We would worship with just a guitar and like a djembe, and then the pastor would preach, and then we'd all go outside and just play in the snow. Like that's what you do when you live in Colorado, if you moved here from California or Texas, this is what you do when you're in Colorado, okay? So if you stay here and you live here and you have kids here and like you're an adult here, don't be a sissy. Go out in the snow, amen? We could stop there and just praise the Lord, bring the worship team back up, don't you think? All right, no, 1 John chapter two. This is where we're gonna be tonight. We're in a series on God is love. Everyone say God is love. God is love. We opened up in 1 John chapter one last week. And our hope for this series over the next five weeks is that God would simply break down and restructure any of our concepts that we have of love that is not him. And here's the thing, John makes really clear in the beginning part of his letter who this letter is to. Talked about it a little bit last week. This letter is primarily directed towards believers and yet there's kind of this secondary audience that he's talking to of people who call themselves follower, followers of Christ, but really aren't. So he's saying, hey, it is entirely possible for there to be a group of people 
who say they follow me, who say they know me, who walk around and they might shout, they might pray, they might do all of the right things, but at the end of the day, their hearts are far from me. And he says, look, if you're going to be somebody who follows Jesus, you have to be somebody who walks in the light, not in the darkness. If you walk in the darkness, you're a liar and you don't practice the truth, but if you walk in the light, you fellowship with God and Jesus' blood is faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, okay? Starting to trigger a little bit of memory in you. And so what he's getting at here is he's going, look, there is a people that either one, say they follow Jesus, but there is nothing about their life that shows that they follow Jesus. They're not followers of Jesus. And there's another category of people who do everything, quote, right, but have no faith in Jesus. These would also be considered not followers of Jesus. And then he makes really clear in this letter that you can be a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, and still struggle and wrestle with sin. And this is really important because there is a, there's a whole, whole strand of belief that would say, hey, no, no, once you give your life to Christ, or, or maybe church language would say, once you say the, quote, sinner's prayer, you no longer need to worry about following Jesus anymore. You got your get out of hell free card, to use a monopoly term. Right? And he's going, no, that's not the case. You, we still wrestle with sin. You wrestle with sin. I wrestle with sin. We wrestle with sin every day, and we will wrestle with sinfulness every day for the rest of our lives. And he's saying, hey, that's okay. It's okay that you can be somebody who struggles. The question is, what do you do with your struggle? Do you try to take care of it in your own strength? Or do you bring it to the Lord? And that's the question I want to kind of wrestle out tonight. What does sin actually look like? And what does the role of Jesus look like? We're only going to do two verses tonight. We're going to keep it simple because it's snowing. And that's what you do on snow nights. 1 John 2, verse 1, this is what it says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you, and I thank you for the snow. Bring more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. Lord, I thank you for every man and every woman in this room this evening. And Lord, how even though it's crazy weather and we made it here this evening, your spirit is here and among us. And though we might be smaller in crowd tonight, your presence is thicker than ever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come and you would speak to us here this evening. Would you show us what John meant as you inspired your word in him to write, my dear children, I write to you so that you may not sin. But if we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, would you show us what that means tonight? Show us what it means. Would you come and would you shape us? Would you mold us? Would you help us look and believe in Jesus this evening? 
So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you have your way? And if you're with me tonight, can you say amen? Amen. This is really simple. It's not complicated, okay? John opens up this text with giving us somewhat of a hope and somewhat of a truth. Somewhat of a hope and somewhat of a truth. My dear children, now what he's saying in these words is not that he's talking to kids. It's a term of endearment in the Greek. He's saying, my brothers and sisters, those whom I love, those whom I care for, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. We talk about sin a lot around the church. You're gonna, you hear things like, don't sin. And we kind of associate sin with the things that we do wrong. A couple months ago, I talked to you about the, the concept of getting to know your sin. And we have to get to know our sin for a couple of reasons. Primarily, if we don't see ourselves as sinners, there's no need for a savior. Translation, if you walked in here tonight and you think you are all that in a bag of chips, you're not, okay? This is what, this is what he's saying. He's going, look, we have to get to know our sin. We have to actually see ourselves as broken people. And unless we see ourselves as broken people, we don't see a need for something to be fixed. Are you with me tonight? He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And this is the question that I want to pose to you this evening. Why is sin such a big deal to God? Why is sin such a big deal to God? I mean, we literally have the narrative of Scripture based around this reality that it was because sin entered the world that we kind of see all of this brokenness and we kind of we blame disease and a global pandemic and racial injustice and all of these things on sin. And we see that there's this, this kind of like righteous response from God towards this idea of sin. And I think we rarely ask ourselves the question, why is it that God hates sin so much? And if we can't answer this question correctly, then you really can't order your faith correctly and you really can't understand why God is love correctly. Why does God hate sin so much? I wanna to attempt to answer that this evening. I'm gonna give you four reasons, main reasons why I think God hates sin so much. Number one is this, sin separates creation from the creator. Sin separates creation from the creator. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59, 2 said it this way. But your iniquities, he's talking to Israel here, but this prophetically is a word for all of humanity. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not Hear you, your iniquities, your brokenness has separated you from your God and your sins have made it to where you cannot see his face. If we go back all the way to Genesis chapter three, we have this moment where God has created Adam and Eve and all of creation and he's called it good, good. And we have a moment where he gives Adam and Eve one commission, one command of, a, of, of something not to do. He says, look, do not take of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. 
For if you do, you shall surely die. And we know exactly what happens. They eat of the fruit. And what happens? He has to kick them out of the garden because they are no longer righteous. They are no longer worthy to be in the presence of God. Sin separates creation from its creator and our creator hates it. He hates the idea, the concept, the reality of something being in between you and him. He hates the idea of something covering his face from your eyes. When we embrace a life of sin, we are not able to see God for who he truly is. And our creator hates it. But it doesn't just separate us from God. Second reason that God hates sin is sin <laughs> brings destruction and death. Can we put that slide up? Destruction and death. You follow the train of Genesis chapter 3, and what do you have? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And what happens? God comes before them, and he lays out three curses. He curses the serpent. He curses the woman. And he curses the man. And he says, look, from dust you came, now to dust you shall return. The only thing that sin will bring about in your life is death. Paul echoes this message in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 20, he says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What he's saying is, when you were slaves to sin, you had no care for righteousness. You were not obligated to it at all. But what fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed. So what he's saying is not only, not only are you, are you free from righteousness, but the things that you were doing when you were in sin were shameful. There's a reason why all of us here aren't posting on Instagram or social media our weaknesses and our brokenness and where we fall short. There's a reason why predominantly people post the best parts of their life. There's a reason why when you look at pornography and you know there's something wrong in you, you wanna hide it and you don't wanna say anything to it and you don't wanna tell anybody about it. There's a reason why when you're doing something that you know your parents have asked you not to do, you try and hide it. Why? Because sin is shameful. We're ashamed of our own brokenness. We're ashamed of the reality that sin brings in our lives. And he doesn't just stop here. In verse 23 he says, for the end of those things is death. Skip to 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin brings destruction and death. And it's death in two ways. It's death, yes, to where if you've, if, if you've grown up in like the American education system, you've probably heard this statement. There are two things that are sure in life. Death and taxes. Taxes are just terrible. <laughs> just enjoy the season where you don't have to pay them. Death and taxes. And what this, this is what it's saying. If you took a first breath, the only thing you're guaranteed is a last breath. You with me? 
if you took a first breath, the only thing you're guaranteed is a last breath. We will return to death. Yes, physically, but he talks about death in a much more broad sense than that. He's saying, no, 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 this is eternal separation from your creator. Eternal separation from your creator. This is what some have come to define as hell. You are not with the creator anymore. This is the destination of sin. It's hell. It's hell. It's separation from our God. And there's no such thing as confidence in it. There's nothing but shame in it. Why do you think Adam and Eve ran and hid themselves when they ate of the fruit? We're ashamed of our sin. Sin brings about destruction and death. Then it gets even a little bit more serious than that. Reason number three why God hates sin is sin is the nature of Satan. I want you to hear this in 1 John 3. This is the next chapter over from what we're going through right now. John says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I want to define this term Satan. We see it as kind of like the fallen angel with like horns outside his head. And what he's saying here is sin is the practice of the enemy of God. Are you with me? Sin is the practice of the enemy of God. In John 10.10, the apostle says, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. The practice of sinning is not simply doing bad things in life and kind of avoiding morality. That's not why God hates sin. Sin is the very condition of the heart that's raising its fist to heaven itself and simply saying, screw you. You have no right to be my God. I'm a better God than you ever would be. I am your enemy, not your friend. I have come to steal, to kill, and destroy all that God has called good. This is the nature of sin. Are you with me? Sin is the nature of the devil. In other words, sin is the nature of the enemy of God, and God hates it. Are you with me so far? Reason number four, and this is a big one. Sin insults the suffering of Christ. Sin insults the suffering of Christ. I want you to, to track with me here. Titus 2.14, the apostle Paul says this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared. So this is the question we have to ask when we read that. What is this grace that appeared? What, what appeared that, that, that Paul is calling the grace of God? And the answer comes right after. It says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus 
Christ. So what is the grace of God that appeared? Jesus Christ. Are you with me so far? Jesus Christ is the grace of God that appeared, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When we sin, when we embrace sin, this is what we are saying to Jesus. We are saying, I do not regard your suffering, your death on the cross, as a sufficient incentive to keep me from doing what I want to do. Let me make it a little more simple. You're looking and you're scrolling on your phone and an opportunity comes for you to keep looking at something that you shouldn't. And when you embrace it and you decide to look anyway, what that is is saying Christ's death on the cross was not a sufficient incentive. It was not enough to get you to look away. When your parents ask you to do something and you don't want to do it because you simply just don't like your parents, what you are saying is Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient incentive enough for you to honor your father and mother. What you are saying is ultimately Jesus, what you came, what you lived, what you bled, what you died for is not enough to get me from doing what I want to do. It insults the very work that Christ came and accomplished for you and for me. These reasons are why God hates sin. Are you with me? Sin separates you and me from our creator. And it doesn't just separate us from our creator. It brings about destruction and death in our life. And it doesn't just bring about destruction and death in our life. It is the very nature, it is the very practice of Satan himself, the enemy of God. And it's not just the practice of the enemy of God. It is an insult to the cross and to the suffering of Jesus Christ. This is why, along with many other reasons, God hates sin. And this is why John begins this chapter with saying, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, if I haven't depressed you or discouraged you already, I promise that's not the end of the message because it's not the end of the gospel. We get an encouraging word that follows us. He says, but if you do sin, let's go ahead and put that verse up. If you do, if anyone does sin, what happens? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two words I want to identify here. Advocate. Christ is our advocate. This is what he's saying. The baseline definition for advocate is somebody who pleads your case for you. So in, in terms of our understanding, and I've given you this illustration before, you're in the courtroom. You're standing on trial. And the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy has come before you. And the judge is God. And he's saying, this is what they have done. And he starts listing the accusations, all of which are true about your life. 
He begins to say how sinful you have been. He begins to reveal every dark and dirty secret that you have. He begins to reveal every insecurity and self-hatred you have about yourself. He begins to say how you have mocked and defiled the name of God. And after, he, after he's done with all the accusations and he says the very sentence, the consequence for this type of accusation is in fact death. The very next word spoken in the courtroom is your advocate, Jesus Christ, who step up, steps up and says, I paid for that. I paid for that. I want to explain it to you like this. The second word that I want to explain is propitiation. And what this word means is satisfaction to the wrath of God. He's saying that Jesus was the satisfaction for the wrath of God for your and my sins or, or, or sins of believers. Are you with me? So this is what this would look like. I want you to, 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 to follow, follow a train of thought for me real quick. I want you to think of a judge. And a judge that is the absolute worst type of judge you could think of. This judge is corrupt as they come. He's not just. He takes bribery. He has his own agenda. He doesn't listen to the facts of any case. He goes based on his own assumption, his own judgment, and he passes criminals left and right as long as they pay him off, okay? You got this type of judge. Now bear with me here. This is just an illustration. It's not real life, so don't get overly depressed on me. I want you to picture the person you love most in this world person you care for most, friend, sibling, mother, father, the person you care for most, okay? And in this situation, that loved one is brutally and horrifically murdered by some criminal, by some criminal. And here's the thing, the criminal has no remorse over what they did. In fact, they've told you that they would willingly do it again if they get off trial. And in your case, the case where this guy is going to go to trial for the sin of murdering your most loved person, you get assigned the judge who has no care for justice. No care for justice. Trial day comes. You're standing there. The person who brutally murdered your dearest loved one is on trial. The judge is standing there and the judge says, I think we're just going to let this one slide today. We're going to let it slide. Every person in here would agree that is not a just judge. There's a reason why our culture craves justice. There's a reason why we absolutely love movies like The Avengers. There's, there's, a, there's a reason why we love that like pinnacle moment of Iron Man having the infinity glove on, just trolling Thanos. I'm Iron Man. Right? Why? Because something's right about it. 
there's an essence of good conquering evil. Are you with me? God is not that type of judge. He is not the type of judge that is going to let evil slide under the rug. And our proof of that is the person of Jesus Christ. As we're being accused for our sin, the just response for the sinful lives all of us in this room have lived is the cross. Is the cross. And the gospel is saying, no, 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 no. God sent his own son in the flesh and crushes him. Why? For those who put their faith in him to have eternal life. Why is Jesus being our advocate such a big deal? And maybe let me ask it like this. Why is Jesus such a big deal? In the Christian faith, why is Jesus the one who matters most to us? I'm going to give you four reasons why, and you're going to be able to predict all four of them. You know why? Number one, Jesus restores creation to the creator. He restores creation to the creator. Let me show you here. John 16, 26, 27. The apostle says this, in that day you will ask in my name. This is Jesus talking to his followers. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. This is what Jesus is saying to his followers. You don't have to ask me to ask the Father. Because of the work I have done for you, you can now go directly to the Father. You have access and relationship with the creator in heaven again. Are you with me? Jesus restores relationship. He brings back into right order the relationship between creation and its creator. But he doesn't just stop there. Jesus does not bring about destruction and death. No, Jesus brings life. He brings life. John 10.10, you know that verse? The thief, he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But look how he finishes it. I, Jesus, I came that you may have what? You may have what? You may have life and have it what? Abundantly. I came so that you would have life and you would have it abundantly. He says it like this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know where your life is headed when you put your faith in me? Do you know where your life is headed when you have relationship with Jesus? The destination is eternal life. It's back into Eden, into right relationship with the Father. Jesus restores creation to the creator. Jesus brings life. Jesus, number three, gives us a new nature. We are no longer thriving under the nature of the enemy of God, but we're given a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know what you get to call God 
because of Jesus Christ? Paul tells you in Romans 8, 15, he says it like this. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out what? Abba, Father. Jesus gives you new nature to which you can call the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the God who was and is and is to come, Father. He gives you a new nature. I want to invite the worship team back up. And reason number four, why Jesus is such a big deal, is Jesus upholds the suffering of Christ. You could say that also that Jesus upholds the suffering of himself. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1, the author says this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hear these words who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My dear children, I write to you, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but our sins for the whole world. Can you stand with me? One of the great tragedies of believers, young men and women in your situation who come to a big evangelical church, maybe you grow up in a Christian home, you graduate high school, you're going to go off to college, you're going to take a gap year, you're going to start working, whatever it's going to be. Is if I were to sit and ask the two questions that I asked tonight, why does God hate sin so much? And why is Jesus such a big deal? Most of the time, they can't answer the question. You might be able to kind of recall some facts about Jesus coming and dying and quoting John 3.16. But I need you to hear me this evening. The walk of faith is not God saying, get your life together. It's not it. It's not him looking through your life and seeing where you're so jacked up, where you're so broken, where you can't figure it out, and him just going, deal with it. That's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that in your brokenness, in my brokenness, God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, he came to us and he said, hey, let me help you. 
let me help you. This is not a God saying, get your act together. This is, this is if water could plead with you. If water could plead with you while you are thirsty and if it could say, drink me and you'll never thirst again. That's Jesus coming to you. This is, this is if air could plead with you as you're suffocating, suffocating, air coming to you, oxygen saying, breathe me in. I'll give you new life. I think that's what Jesus is doing with us tonight is in the midst of all of our brokenness, mine included, on a snowy February Wednesday evening. He's saying, come to me. I'm here. I'm here. You don't need to figure out your life. You don't need to figure out your brokenness. Here's what you can do with your brokenness. Let me tell you, give it to me. Give it to me and watch me speak life over you. Watch me restore relationship between you and your creator. Watch me take you off a path of destruction and death and set you on a path that gives life. And this is where your flesh might rise up and say, yeah, but that's no fun. Sinning's fun. Following Jesus is lame. It costs everything. Hear me. It's a weak view one's own world. Weak view. Your mind's telling you you're going to miss out on all the pleasures of this life. And the gospel is telling you, let me show you the true pleasure that will satisfy your life forever. He's going to restore you. He's going to give you life. He's going to give you new nature. And he's going to honor the work that he's done for you. So this is what I want to do. I just want us to get intimate with the Lord here for a second. Can we bring down the lights, Drew? Just make it pretty dark in here. If you can, if you can honor me with the, just take this moment yourself. And the team's going to lead us here. And I just want you to, Vic, Victor said it at the beginning of the worship set, let's look up. Let's look at Jesus here this evening. And instead of kind of looking at your life and seeing all of its brokenness and all of its meh and all the things that you feel really bad about and, and discouraged about, hear the words of John this evening and realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an advocate with the Father and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the satisfaction for the wrath of God for your sins. And he's come to give you new life. And if you're in here this evening and you don't believe in Jesus, then hear me, the invitation is to receive that very truth for your life tonight. This is why John finishes it with not just our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. The invitation is for translation, the entire human race to find this grace to meet with this Jesus. And so I shut as, Drew, if you could even bring it a little bit darker. 
And as the team plays and sings over you, I, I want you to simply just engage with Jesus here. Engage with Jesus. If you could humor me for a second and it's like just, just kind of imagine that there's nobody else in this room except you and Jesus. You and Jesus, the Son of God, the one who came and lived and died and rose again for those who would put their faith in Him. I'll have times where I'm driving home from work or I'm driving home from somewhere, and what I'll do is I sit there in the driver's seat is I'll just imagine that Jesus is in the passenger seat and I'm having a conversation with him. And instead of me telling him all of, all of my filth and what I think about myself, I just kind of let him tell me what he thinks about me. And so for these couple of minutes, I wanna invite you to do that same thing. I want you to invite Jesus to tell you what he thinks about you. And hear me, they're not thoughts of death or discouragement or hopelessness. They're thoughts of life. They're thoughts of hope. It's invitational. It's receptive. So I just want to take a little bit of time. Let's engage with the Lord as the worship team plays. As we engage back with worship, we'll come back and we'll close here. But take some time, just you and Jesus in the room tonight snowy February Wednesday evening and just ask Lord give me ears to hear and ask him to speak and just see what he might have to say thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries if you want to keep up with what's happening with us follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.